Hi, everyone. It's Mark Penziner. It is uh, noon, so I hope you have had a chance to sign on either electronically and can see the slides or have dialed in and are getting this uh, via your cell phone and can hear the audio. So thank you for taking the time. We are going to try and continue to do these every about two weeks or as markets dictate. I'd like to say I'm hopeful that I'm doing less of these because that would suggest the world and markets are getting closer to normal then I'm doing more of these. And so we'll have to um, see how that evolves over the coming weeks. I would be remiss if I didn't say two things. One, I, I hope you and your families and the people you care about are safe and hunkered down and are making the best of a, a tough situation. And uh, thank you to those of you who have been in touch um, about portfolios, about markets, just about how life is in general, because being connected through times like this is, is difficult. And so to the extent that we are talking, I think that makes this all more bearable. Um, so we've been doing this about a month now, this remote working, remote contacting our clients. And I think we've done a decent job of adjusting to the new normal. As you know, the firm is fully functional. I, I would just say that a lot of our contact with you has obviously changed to the form of calls, emails and, and now these webinars um one webinar from last week that if you missed I'd, I'd highly suggest you check out it's got really good feedback was on the municipal bond market with our senior bond portfolio manager daryl clements it's 35 40 minutes it's his face on a zoom talking about the the challenges and the opportunities in the muni market interviewed by one of the senior managing directors of the firm so if you're interested in the muni market i will just touch on it today but if you want a deep dive on municipals, I will um, happily suggest you check out that, that webinar and you can reach out to Amanda or myself and we can send you the link should you not have it. Um, one other quasi housekeeping note in the CARES Act that was passed about two weeks ago by Congress, uh, there were changes to the IRA required minimum distribution rules. There are no longer required minimum distributions for 2020. So Amanda will be reaching out to each of you directly who has a required minimum distribution to determine if you need that money. If you do, and that's your best source of income, we'll continue that. If you need the money for living expenses, but there is a more tax efficient and smarter way for us to send that to you, we'll talk about that. And, and then if um, you just had to take that money out and otherwise didn't need it for expenses, we'll talk to you about just shutting that down for 2020 and restarting that in 2021. So a housekeeping item on the RRA RMD front that is worth uh, letting you know that we will be in touch about. So where, where do we go from here, I, I think is really the, the way to frame both where we are and what the path forward looks like. And I'm talking to you on a day where markets have been down four, five, 600 points. And, and I will show you to put today and the year in perspective, this is one day move since 1990. And, and you will see that 2020, and this is gonna be a theme throughout, stands out on the chart like a sore thumb. So 2008, 2009 is the great financial crisis. On the chart, that's the line right here. If you look at 2020, in just a quarter, the one day moves of the S&P 500 rival what you saw in the great financial crisis of 08, 09. And so it is fair to say that volatility has been extremely unusual and extremely high. I don't think in any way that would surprise you. What may surprise, I think a lot of people, is how this came out of nowhere and really kind of smacked the markets and investors in the face. 
So the chart on the left is the S&P 500. And what I'm showing you is traditionally weeks between a 20% sell-off. A 20% sell-off is what we typically define as a bear market. And so on average, which is what you see in the gray, every 106 weeks, call it every two years, the market goes through a 20% decline, a bear market. Leading up to February 19th of this year, so six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, we had gone 573 weeks without a bear market. Now we got close in December of 2018, which you can see right here. But what's interesting is, even with the 35% decline at its worst towards the end of March, we are back at the levels we were January of 2019. So you've basically rode a, a um, roller coaster, or, or maybe better described a Ferris wheel, back to the starting point of where you were basically 15 months ago. By the way, the, the treasury bond market has, has not been immune to this either. You know, we've talked about low interest rates for what seems like forever. One year ago, this is across the chart, treasury bond yields from three month treasuries all the way out to the 30 year treasury. That yield curve was around two and a half percent getting close to three one year ago. By the way, you see how the slope of that line in the blue goes down at the 12 month, two month, three year, five year. That is that notion of the inverted yield curve that people talked about obsessively 12 months ago. Oh, the yield curve's inverted. That, that tells us there's going to be an economic recession. Now, we are clearly in a recession now. I don't think you can make the, the, the connection that there's causality between that inverted yield curve and COVID-19. I think that's just going to be one of these data points that we're going to have to remember two years, five years, 10 years from now when someone says, hey, the yield curve was inverted and 12 months later we were in a recession. I don't think the yield curve knew anything about the coronavirus 12 months ago. So remember, you got to be careful when you make some of those connections. At the end of 2019, 90 days ago, the yield curve was lower. Interest rates, the 10-year treasury, was paying sub 2%. Look at where it is today. The yield curve has effectively just come down to nothing. You know the Fed funds rate is zero. That's what you see all the way on the bottom left in the purple. The 10-year treasury is paying, as of this morning, 0.7%. So if you buy a 10-year treasury, I will argue you do have the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. I don't think you're defaulting, but you're going to get a 0.7% return taxable for the next decade. So in real money for most of our clients who are high, if not top tax bracket, you're locking your money up for 10 years at about 0.4%. By the way, if you say, you know what, I'd lock it up longer to get a higher yield. If you go to 30 years, you're locking your money in at sub one and a half percent. Now, this is the U.S. Treasury yield curve. If you were to look elsewhere around the globe, about half of the world's sovereign debt is negative, right? German bunds are negative. Um, Canada, Japan, Great Britain all float right around zero. So interestingly, as bad as our 10-year treasury yield is, it's actually attractive relative to lots of other parts of the world. Now, I talked about volatility. On the left is how many times last year the market moved by 2%. So these are the days where you say, my God, the Dow was up 600 points, down 1,000, up 1,500. I mean, these are extraordinary circumstances. Last year, that happened five times. 
in the first quarter of this year, it was 13. Now, I don't think that's going to happen each quarter, but if it did, that's 52 times in the year where last year it was five. That is radically different levels of volatility. And, and if you look across asset classes on the right, there really was nowhere to hide. Whether you looked at U.S. stocks, large cap, small cap, emerging market stock, developed market stock, growth stocks, China, all of those ran negative. In fact, so did U.S. corporate bonds, European corporate bonds, U.S. municipal bonds all ran negative. The, the only place you could hide really was treasuries. But that said, treasuries were not immune to price volatility. So while yes, if you locked your money in a 90-day treasury or a 10-year treasury or a two-year treasury, your principal was secure from default, the price at what that treasury was trading at in the market, if you needed to sell it, could have been radically different from what you paid for it. And so if you look on the chart on the left, you see out of nowhere this spike in volatility on the treasury market. That is usually a very calm, orderly market. It's one of the reasons why the Fed has injected so much money into not only the treasury market, but other parts of the credit markets. I'll talk more about that in a second. On the right is a, a, a something that I talked to a handful of clients a lot about that I think is underappreciated in the market. This is the notion of in the municipal bond market, there is no New York Stock Exchange. When we want to sell a bond on your behalf, we've got to call Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all the other bond shops around and say, hey, we want to sell this New York bond. What price would you buy it for? It, it is a, a, an old world trading environment. And what happens is think about it like bad analogy today, buying toilet paper. If you go to Costco, you're going to get per roll or per sheet a very good price per square inch of toilet paper. But in a crisis, if you need toilet paper and the only place you can get it is your neighbor next door, he's going to charge you a heck of a lot for that roll and your per sheet price is going to be extravagant as compared to if you bought uh, a giant size at Costco. Typically, that penalty or the difference between buying wholesale versus retail, that normal difference, and in the municipal bond market, it's about a million dollar purchase price, is about 1%. So there's about a 1% trading cost on a million dollar bond lot, okay? On bond trades of under a million dollars in mid-March, that price penalty was north of 9%. So you had a bond face value, $100, you said, hey, I want to go sell it. The best price you were probably going to get in the market if you were selling less than a million dollars of that one issue was 91. That is extreme. The market froze up. Now, the, the contrary part is that made yields go up and it made it a very interesting opportunity if you were buying because as the buyer, you could buy at 91 as opposed to what might be the real value at par at 100. More on that in the webinar. Um, and for anyone who's interested in the technicals of the bond market and, and how we're managing that, um, feel free to reach out to us. Um, also, this has impacted how we've thought about rebalancing in client accounts because clients have asked the question, well, have you sold bonds to buy stock? And we've said, well, we've wanted to, but we have to be really thoughtful about this. And we don't want to expose clients to municipal bond odd lot penalties just to rebalance into stock. And so the notion that our risk management team, our stock team, and our bond team are all talking together helps us avoid clients 
tech taking this type of hit in the bond market. It's hard to see that in, in your portfolios day to day. If you have portfolios at other managers, it's hard to feel that in your performance. But, but these are real haircuts that exist in the market that we want to be thoughtful about. So what's priced into the market? Do we have better days ahead? And, and is your financial plan still on track? I think those are the, the three big questions. And I've created this really ugly, but I hope efficient COVID-19 scorecard, which Amanda and I came up with at 11.35, five minutes, as we might want. I think you have to break this into two scorecards. One is the health and one is the policy scorecard. And think about where we were February, March, then late March, early April, and now. And when we did our first webcast, I said to you, I thought the market was gonna struggle materially until we had progress on two fronts. One, the health, whether that was in a therapeutic treatment or in a vaccine or, or lower infection rates, and or on the policy side. But the, either of those two things would help stabilize and move markets forward, but we had no certainty. When we were in February, March, the health news was, I'm calling it a double negative, minus, minus, just terrible, right? And the policy question, both what the Fed would do and what government, what, what Congress and the executive branch would do was, was a question mark. So in very simple terms, all the market could see was two negatives. I've got this unknown virus, the health implications could be as bad as I can imagine, and I, and I have no idea how we're gonna support the economy. And so markets sell off rapidly. As I move to late March, early April, I still have all those health problems and questions, but now I'm getting action from the Fed. More on that in a second. And so I start to put in a bit of a bottom because I have some protection on the policy side. I'll get more into what that means in a second. Today, and the market is up roughly 20% since its bottom. Why is that? I think in the simplest form, the health news is still bad, but there's, there's some optimism that the worst forecast may not be realized. So I would call the health data still a negative, but not as scary negative as it was, heck, a week or two ago when it was you know, 200,000 200, US deaths, maybe more. And now that there's been some encouraging data around um, the rates of infection in New York and hospitalizations, and that the healthcare system may not be overwhelmed, I'm taking the health score from a double negative to a single negative, and the policy response is a positive, and there's some question marks to whether it'll be even a double positive. And so I think removing one of those negatives and getting more optimism on the policy side is, is why the market is where it is today. I don't think we have true stability, and, and this is over, quote unquote, until the health side goes from a negative to at least flat, right? I mean, I'd love it to be a positive, that's vaccine, that's therapeutics, but as long as the healthcare side gets from the negative to at least stable and you have positive policy outcome, that's interesting. Now, the, the thought on the V-shaped recovery, which, which we're not subscribing to is, well, if the healthcare situation is fixed and we've had all of this policy response, not only with money into the system, but really low interest rates, then the economy could really take off after that. I think we may be too early to jump to that conclusion, but, but that's the rationale for why there'd be this big V-shaped recovery. So what is Wall Street and, and what are we forecasting? On the left is GDP. And if you look at economists across the street, some people think GDP will be down in second quarter, five, 10%. 
The really draconian ones have been about down 35. I think JP Morgan came out down 40. Um, Eric Winograd, our chief US economist, has us down in the 20s for GDP in the second quarter. So, so those are you know, numbers like we haven't seen since the depression. I say the word depression and I, and I understand that's frightful. These numbers are as bad, but we should remember the depression was a decade. There isn't a base case out there that says we won't have a therapeutic or a vaccine for a decade, right? It, you know, if that doesn't come for five years or seven years, um, well, we do have a depression. I, I don't think that's controversial, but the time horizon has been on the base case, you know, we're 12, 18 months away from treatment or, or from a vaccine. And so this is really about the complete sudden stop of the US and global economy and, and then what the pickup from there is. The depression was literally a decade of limited economic activity. And so where do we think GDP will be for the full year? Well, or all forecasts, ours included, assume a rebound in the back half of the year, which softens the blow from a just horrific second quarter. And so, so we think we'll be in a recession this year, somewhere in the neighborhood of low single digits. Um, forecasts have, have the most optimistic, have basically GDP for the year as flat. That's the full V-shaped recovery, right? You, you come down and then you recover just as quickly as you went down. I think that's too optimistic. Um, and then there, there are forecasts out there that have US GDP down close to 10% for the year. That's, that's a really ugly number. A lot of people have asked us, how does this compare to 2008 and what's priced in? This is a chart about the banking system. All those charts just on quick glance will tell you that the banking system looks better today than it did 2008. But I'm gonna flip forward a whole bunch of slides and, and give you a chart that I think actually may capture this a little bit better, which is to say, what's the leverage in the system, right? What's the debt out there? And the, the X and Y on this chart, the center of the chart, the zero point, is, is really the financial crisis, right? That's pre and post the Great Recession, financial crisis, housing, banking crisis of 08. Prior to the crisis, and, and we know this in hindsight, right? There was way too much leverage or debt in the banking system and, and in Americans' balance sheets, right? They had taken on way too large of a mortgage relative to their income. So there, there, there was just too much bad debt, right? They were overexposed to their house. Banks had way too much exposure to the housing market. So there was way too much bad debt leverage in the system. If you think about where we are today, that's not true, right? Financial service sector debt is really low. Household debt is in the right path. Where we have increased debt as a society is a bit on the corporate side but it's significantly on the government side, right? That's all that printing of money. So yeah, there's more debt in the system, but, but if there was a lender of last resort, it should be the government and, and that's where the debt is in the system. So let me go back to where we were and take you back forward. So, so what do we think is priced into the market? Now, this is an, an attempt at quantification. And I say the word attempt because all earnings forecasts are kind of a joke right now. I mean, no one really knows where anything's going to land in second quarter, let alone third or fourth. It's so healthcare dependent. A lot of companies will stop giving guidance, but this is just a way to kind of think about what's the pain potentially in the market. On the right-hand side in that gray, this is what the market was thinking at the start of 2019. It was that earnings per share would be up 8%. That, that wasn't wildly optimistic. It was reasonable. And PEs would basically be 18, which is where they were. Where we are today with markets down about 20% are implying 
a 15% drop in earnings. So companies doing a lot worse. And a PE roughly in the 18% range again. If you want to say, well, Mark, could markets fall another 20, 30% from where they are today? That gets you into this bottom left number. That's the down 40 to 50% scenario. And now you'd have to have earnings fall 20 to 25%, which is extreme, right? If earnings fall by 25%, that's basically a zero for one quarter and, and nothing better than was anticipated in the other three quarters. And you'd need PE ratios to fall into the 12, 13, 14 range. I don't think that's likely, but as I've said in a lot of these calls in, in the past, markets often overshoot. So if you see markets down 44%, just to pick a number, that might imply that earnings are down 25% and that the PE is 14. But markets aren't rational in the short term. You know, there's, there's a ton of talks I've done with you and, and in person and, and in podcasts about um, behavioral finance and how markets are emotional. And in the short term, I think fear and greed dictate markets. So I don't think you can look at the market every day and say, well, this is what the market's pricing in for the future. It is way too volatile day to day. And look, especially in the day to day today, when you think back to those earlier volatility charts, the market day to day is trading on very short term news. There's a lot of momentum trading, computer trading, short covering going on from three to four o'clock in the market. And, and I don't think you can believe that, you know, if the market goes up an extra 500 or down an extra 500 points from 3.30 to four o'clock, that the market's really worth one or 2% more, or it's pricing at a different multiple, it's people, institutions, and computers repositioning their portfolios. And, and so you got to take the day-to-day -day movement with a touch of grain of salt. So what are we watching for? China is a good roadmap. Our, our office in Hong Kong and, and in China have, have contributed a lot to these charts and, and helping us think about what the path back is. And so the, the zero day on this chart here is the, the lunar new year in China. That's, that's really when everything shut off in China on January 25th. You will see 60 days out, subway ridership is still down 80%. Coal consumption has come back to where it was. Migration is still way off of where it was and traffic congestion, China stopped publishing that data. So we, we don't have a good feel for that. Um, but it tells you that even China didn't get back to normal a month after the crisis, right? It is a gradual return path to normal. And if you look at the data by, um, by province, by local region, where Wuhan is, Hubei province is the light number on this chart. This is um, factories up and running, large scale factories. So 50% in Hubei province is, is back up and running, um, but they're the epicenter of the crisis. You can see in lots of areas around China, they're running back at 80, 90, close to 100% capacity on large scale factories. Now, the second part of that problem is gonna be, you, you gotta have people buying goods from China. And, and I don't mean that from a trade perspective, you just need to have global demand, right? If, if China is making, I'm just using a simple example, I've got a five-year-old at home, toys, you, you need people to buy toys for the Chinese factories to be up and running to make them, to ship them around the world. So even if you now have um, the, the supply capabilities in China to build, you got to have demand. And while we're social isolating globally, the demand side of the equation is clearly a challenge. So what else are we watching? Uh, US labor markets. This chart is bizarre, right? Um, the scale of this chart, if you did it prior to 2020, I'm gonna take that off. 
this this would be the the prior chart and 2007 8 9 the great recession the dot com in 0102 you would change the whole scale of the chart to try and show how terrible the great recession was but the great recession barely even registers when you look at what the initial jobless claims have looked like over the last few weeks this is truly uncharted territory right and so this is a number we're really going to have to watch now the offset is what the government is doing. And, and so we framed it before in the notion of repair and replace. Monetary policy, the, the treasury, sort of, the Fed, most directly, what they're trying to do is repair the system, right? Make sure the plumbing of the financial markets works so that money flows in the right places as it's supposed to, and that there aren't stresses in the system so that this health and therefore economic crisis doesn't become a financial crisis. So what has the Fed done of late? Just to add to this chart, um, on Thursday, the Fed said things like they would buy high income bonds. Um, that's really unique. Now they're not gonna go out and buy a high income mutual fund, but they're gonna do it through ETFs. That is really supportive to the market. Um, they're gonna put an extra $500 billion into state and municipalities that will help um, states and local municipalities with the costs associated that they're going to have to take on with the healthcare burden and the loss of tax revenue. It's also important to note that in the CARES Act, the government allocated $425 billion to the Fed to use to, to support markets. They were going to go out and lever that up. They have done that to support markets through a whole host of programs that I'll show on the next page. Um, they've basically used 50% of those resources, so they've got another 50% of that money, again, which they can lever up over the next weeks, months to support the economy without having to go back to treasury. Now the replace component is, is real world, right? It's the fiscal component. It's replace the loss of income of workers and of companies, right? And how you do that and where you direct it and who you bail out and, and does the money go to small businesses, that's more of a political discussion. But look, the, the, the CARES Act was a significant, quickly done move by Congress to support U.S. workers in the U.S. economy. Um, you've heard a lot about the PPP program. There have been discussions that it was too slow, it was messy, there were bottlenecks. But look, banks went from you know, not having this program to having to lend unseen amounts of money basically overnight. And I can tell you that from speaking to clients, deposits are being made into small business bank accounts as we speak. So that money is getting into the system in the face of, frankly, insane demand. Um, our understanding is 100 billion of the 350 billion allocated in the PPP program has already been dispersed. Um, and there's word that Congress would allocate another 250, maybe up to 500 billion of additional funds to the PPP. So th this is the, the bridge, right? This is if the economy shut down one month, two months, three months, four months, how do we get money into people's pockets to, to replace their wages so that shelter, food, the basics are, are, are not an issue? And also that if people don't lose their jobs, when and as we restart the economy, people have jobs to go back to. It is much easier to bring your staff back than fire your staff and find a new staff. And so this is part of the, the calculus in the policy responses. So containment and healthcare funding, we're getting there, supporting individuals and business, it's happening. 
financial system support happening, monetary policy support, and fiscal stimulus are all happening. And I, I kind of just talked through this chart, but the, the point of it is there have been a number of um, different plans that Fed and Treasury have enacted. Look, a lot of this is the playbook from 0809, the TALF program, which is on the bottom of this, are a lot of the things they did in the prior crisis to stabilize markets and they're doing it again. Another one of these ugly charts, but this is, I think, really worth thinking about in the context of just the whole discussion of, of the coronavirus. This is a chart we got from, um, from an insurance company that's the CDC weekly all death number from 2013 to 2020. So this is just people dying in America from everything and anything at all. And what you find is that you know, just about the start of every year, the winter, the death number spikes. And our understanding that's a mix of seasonal flu um, and people doing some stupid stuff around the holidays, right? What is interesting is with the incredible amount of COVID-19 deaths, the total death rate in the US since we've gone into lockdown has dramatically dropped. And that is, as I heard someone say, that people aren't doing stupid stuff anymore because they're locked in their homes. So DWI deaths and, and all types of other deaths that happen you know, just with people being out of the home have stopped because it's, it's hard to you know, accidentally kill yourself if, well, unless your spouse kills you. There's very, it's, it's, it's hard to kill yourself just living in your home. And the interesting thing is total deaths in this country have come down a lot through this period of time. I, I don't have a conclusion here, but I saw this chart and thought it's, it's something I should share with you to, to just think about. Again, make your own conclusions, but it's one of those where I said, hmm, I'm gonna share that because it, it stands out to me as an interesting fact. So how do you play, quote unquote, this market? Well, you've heard me talk about this before. I'm not a big fan of trying to time this market because not only do you have to know when to get out, but you've got to know when to get back in. And that is really difficult because the fear is often what's going to drive you out of the market. There is never an all clear sign on CNBC or the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times that says markets are all fine, time to get back in. You know, incredibly, that could happen here if tomorrow we wake up and there's a vaccine. But if you're out of the market, the market's going to rally before you can get back in for that news. And so the average three-year return of the market from 1988 to 2019 is 10.7%. If you're missing the best five days in those three-year periods, you take the 10.7 that you can get by just owning the index and you turn it to 4.1. So the penalty for missing the best days is extreme. It's so extreme, in fact, that you would be better off just owning bonds. Right? You could own bonds, get the 4.2%, have the peace of mind from 1988 to 2019, and not have the worries of the market, and then trying to get in and out and turning that 10.7 into 4.1. So the point is, you, know, you, you got to try and be committed to whatever the right equity allocation is for you. The other thing to think about is, you know, we are coming off of effectively a 10-year bull market. So, so when you sell out of a portfolio, you have to remember that there is very likely a capital gain due. Now, there are losses in portfolios today in certain securities, so, so we can work within the portfolios to try and offset gains with losses. But to the extent there is a gain, if you sell a stock for $100 and you've got to pay the government 10 bucks in taxes, you only have $90 to reinvest. And so that depends on, are you in California? Are you in New York? Are you in Florida? 
the cost of that trade is different. We think about that in our trading algorithms and every time we make a trade. But when a client calls and says, get me out of the stock market, you know, one of the things they're not thinking about is what's the reduction in capital when they have to pay their taxes? And then how do they make up for that gap? It's an important calculus. It's one of the reasons why I've tried to be thoughtful about this with clients and said, you know, typically you wouldn't sell in your IRA. You'd want your IRA since it's typically your longer term money to be more aggressive than your personal money. But if you need to take down risk, the, the, the place in certain scenarios where you can, the only place you can do it tax-free, if you have all these embedded gains in your personal account, is in your IRA. So there have been times we've together made trades where I thought, let's, let's play in the IRA to take down the risk because we don't have that capital gains hit where we might in the personal account. And so that, that's a, a tactic we're using to deal with this market. For those who were on last two weeks ago or my most recent webinar, you've seen this chart before. So I'm not going to go through it for 10 minutes like I did last time. But the point of this is to say, de-risking at the wrong time can cause permanent damage to portfolios. And so let me walk you through the chart. This is an investor who starts in 2005 with a dollar or scale that $100,000, a million dollars, $10 million. And there's an 80-20 uh, investor who's the most aggressive and a 30-70 client who's less aggressive. The 80-20 client is the top line. They're doing great through the run-up before the great financial crisis. The 3070 client has a much smoother line. Then the financial crisis happens. And as you can see, the slope of that line is straight downhill, much more so for the 80-20. And so the 80-20 investor says, you know what? I've had way more risk than I need. Also note, this investor is living off the portfolio to the tune of 5% per year and says, I've been through this enormous decline. I started with a dollar or a million dollars or $10 million, now down to about $750,000, I need to stop the bleeding, I'm gonna to go to cash. If they go to cash, they become the red line, right? The only loss on this chart, because your cash is the 5% withdrawals. The red line is much better than the continuing drop of the 80-20. So the, the going to cash protects you from the worst of the financial crisis. The challenge is though, when do you get back in? And so we picked where the red line re-begins 2012, and we use that data point because that's when we started to see flows or investors get back into the stock market. Well, so the 80-20 client who stayed with their allocation here went into 2020 and March of 2020, so this is uh, truly April 1st, so this is even after the give back the last three months, the 80-20 client who started with a dollar has a dollar 20, but has had ma material volatility along their path. The 3070s line is pretty boring, right? It goes up and down a bit, but nothing so dramatic. Their dollar after this loss, and remember this is spending 5% a year to fund retirement or whatever else, is at $910,000.91 on the dollar. The 80-20 client who cut the losses at the worst of the financial crisis and went to cash and then got back in, only has 60 cents on the dollar or $600,000. Now, yes, they've lived over that 15 year period, right? And spent their 5%. But I think the most telling part of this chart is that the 80-20 client who was over-invested and, and misread their own tolerance for risk did worse than the 30-70 client. So I would always prefer a client be less aggressive, but be able to weather the storm than be overly aggressive and then have to take evasive action when the storm hits. And, and again, we didn't know it would be COVID-19, but 
we know markets go down for any and no reason at all. And the best way to protect from becoming the red line is to not be over allocated to stock. Now that all said, in today's market environment, we should say, if you're looking at your portfolio and saying, okay, I'm not 80-20 or I am 80-20, I'm 70-30, I'm 60-40. This is really just too much for me emotionally. This is more risk than I can take on. And I've learned that through this period of time. Better you de-risk by five or 10% today. And by today, I mean literally today with the market 20% up from its bottom than had you done it at the bottom around April 1. So if you're hearing this dialogue and you think, you know what, I, I just do think I have too much risk for me. Let's have that discussion because it is a better time to slightly adjust your asset allocation to give you the peace of mind to stay on whatever path you should be than stay overexposed and make that allocation to cash or make a really big change in your asset allocation and hurt your long-term path of returns. Last topic, um, what's the impact of politics? I, I included this, it was all people talked about prior to Corona. Um, it's probably in the back of a lot of people's minds, but, but less acutely when we have a, a pandemic going on. So I'll, I'll pop through these quickly, but if you go all the way back to 1937 and you look at Democratic presidents versus Republican presidents, there, there's nothing conclusive, right? The return has been virtually identical. That's as of December 31. So if you're trying to project who's going to be the president in January or, or win the election in November, what you should do doesn't really tell you anything on this chart. Um, the other thing we looked at is, is the market better off when Democrats control the executive branch and Congress or when Republicans control the executive branch and Congress? So you have unified government or you have divided. The, the presidency is separate from where the House and the Senate are. Actually, divided government does better than a unified government. I'm not, I'm not sure that the 10% versus the 8.2 is, is such a difference that, that you could come to a big conclusion. Um, the only maybe subtext would be markets like certainty. And when you have divided government, nothing really changes because you can't get anything passed. And so markets like that more than, whoa, everything's changing. And, and how do I reprice that? And everyone talks about what the economy's impact is on elections. So here are four one-term presidents and, and who their successors were and what the unemployment rate was when they lost. Were we in a recession or depression in all four of the prior cases? The answer is yes, we were. I also show the annualized return of the market. Um, where we are with Trump is, we don't know if he'll win or lose the election, obviously. The unemployment rate was 4.4%. That is gonna be markedly higher um, today. I don't know where it will become election, but I suspect it's going to be a lot higher than 4.4, and it may be significantly higher than everyone but Hoover on this chart. We're likely to be in a recession. And if we're on our way out of the recession, I don't think we'll know those numbers on election day. And the annualized return of the market is now down to 5.7 under Trump as of March 31. And it's, it's moving fast, right? If we get that V-shaped recovery, that number will pop up. But as you can see from the below for Ford, Carter, and Bush, they had market returns that were all positive and, and they were one-term presidents. So there is clearly a connection between unemployment rate and maybe market performance as to your prognostications on who will be in the White House. What I would say is markets go up over time. That doesn't mean you should own more of the stock market today. But if you look at the comparison between if I invested only during a Republican, that's the red, or I invested only during a, a Democrat, that's the green, or I just invested through all of them, 
investing through all of them does you a heck of a lot better. And the reason is, you know, markets go up, markets go up over time. So if you take 40 years of return out of the market, you just don't compound nearly as much as you should have. So it's kind of a silly chart because if you lose 30, 40 years of market return, you'd think you'd be worse off, but it does underscore how much higher that blue line is than the, the one side of the aisle versus the other. Last chart I'm gonna show, cause I just think this is interesting, is trade and consumption for G20 countries vary. Um, so just think about this, this is, how much trade impacts an individual country. And as you can see in the US, you know, trading, trading is a big part of every modern economy, but it is less relevant for us than it would be for Canada, or South Korea, or Mexico, or Germany, right? Their economy is based on their ability to export goods and services. Um, ours is not entirely based by any means on our ability to import goods and services. So if you think about trade as a stress throughout all this, it's gonna stress everybody by, by, by no doubt. But the impact is likely to be worse, excuse me, less worse here than it would be in a place like Mexico, Germany, or Singapore, right? Singapore basically is, is purely a trading nation. And then household spending as a percent of GDP. Well, you've heard that the US is a consumer-driven economy. The consumer is basically 70% of the economy. That is why there is so much worry in the US, right? If we're all staying home and all we're doing is um, buying food and, and basics, you know, that is a giant hit to an economy that survives on our ability to go to the movies and go out to dinner and pay for entertainment and travel and experiential stuff. Well, if that's gone, we're, we're really exposed. Um, China, on the opposite, you know, you think about China as a place that saves culturally. Household spending as a percent of GDP in China is less than 40%. So just radically different between us and China. And you can pick your country and look at it on the chart. So those are my topics. Um, I, I hope you found this informative. I, I know we went a little long today. It was uh, 40 minutes, but, but key pieces, right? Healthcare, part of the equation, we don't know yet. The monetary and fiscal side has helped. I think until we have clarity on both of those, um, this is a market that's gonna have a hard time getting any sort of sustained momentum one way or the other. When we have days where the healthcare data looks worse, you're going to have downside on the market. And to the extent that you get good policy news, that'll blunt the impact of the healthcare news. Um, as a reminder, if you're interested in the Muni call, please let us know. I will pass along that information. And Amanda and I will be reaching out to you regarding IRA with, um, withdrawals. Um, but if you have questions on that as well, feel free to reach out. Appreciate your time. Um, I assume we'll be doing this again in another two weeks. But most importantly, you, your family, stay hunkered down. Stay hunkered down. Stay safe and um, take care of each other. Thanks for your time.